Um, I want to direct our attention for a few moments to some words that Jesus spoke uh, that are recorded for us by Matthew here in Matthew's Gospel. I don't know if any of you have received an invitation to anything recently. We had a great invitation recently to a wedding uh, which comprised of a hog roast. And those of you who know me would, uh, would know that our reply went back very quickly. We, we love a hog roast. And, uh, and we loved the wedding as well. It was great. Um, that was a secondary thing for me anyway. But I, I've entitled uh, my thoughts for you this morning, uh, The Greatest Invitation. And the reason for that is uh, found in verse 28 of chapter 11, uh, which Dave read to us, where Jesus says, uh, and I think the words will be on the next slide as well, come to me. All who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Another verse of the Bible speaks of, uh, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I don't think it is insignificant that the word that God wants you to hear from the mouth of Jesus here is the word come. Isn't that great? I don't think many people in our world fully appreciate that God has arms that are wide open and that he says to people, come, not go, but come to me and I will give you rest. If you're a visitor here and you're curious about Christianity, then I, I think you've come on a good day because I think these words sum up the essence of the Christian faith. These words have been a great comfort to Christian believers in history. But uh, I think they've also been instrumental in creating new believers in Jesus. And I hope um, these words will achieve both of those things. They will encourage you if you do believe in Jesus. And maybe they'll create faith within you for the first time if you're not yet a believer in Jesus. Now... What I, what I really want to focus on, if you've got a Bible open there, is chapter 11, verse 25 to 30. Um, there are three distinct sections there. The first is a prayer. Jesus lifts up his voice and prays to his Father in heaven. The, the middle section is an explanation as Jesus speaks to the crowd and explains some things. And then the last section from verse 28 there is an invitation, a prayer an explanation, and then an invitation. But before we get into these words, you'll notice at the start of this section that Matthew says, at that time, Jesus declared. Now when I read that, I immediately want to know, what time? Why does Matthew say that? What is going on here, earlier than this, that gives rise to Jesus praying, explaining, and then inviting what is this time? It's really important sometimes in the Bible to notice the little connecting phrases because Matthew's put that there for a reason, isn't he? And so our first question has got to be, what was going on before this that gave rise to Jesus making these statements? And that's why uh, Dave read to us from the end of chapter 9. In many ways, there's a block of thought here that begins at the end of chapter 9 and so here's the deal. I want to very briefly look at some of the background 
and we're gradually build up back to the end of chapter 11 to look at this invitation. And uh, I want to give you three quick headings as we think about the background. So the first one is that Jesus loves needy communities. Just go with me to the end of chapter 9 and uh, look with me at verse 36. Jesus says there, uh, sorry, Matthew says there about Jesus. He describes the scene. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That, that has got to be one of the most poignant verses in the whole Bible. For Jesus to look out on, on, on the communities that he was part of and, uh, and, to, and to, to be moved in his heart with love and compassion. And what a description of people that is. People who are wandering about like sheep who have no shepherd, shepherdless sheep. It is very poignant, isn't it, that these people don't particularly seem to know that they're lost. They're not particularly aware that they're needy. But Matthew's point is that Jesus, as he saw them, his heart went out to the masses of people that he saw. He had compassion for people. He loved people. He pitied their condition. And he longed to be able to do them some good. I often wonder what is in the heart of Jesus as he... What would Jesus make of our communities? Our culture. What would Jesus' attitude be as he surveys the great mass of people in our cities? Student life, working life, family life, your street, your home. All the diversity, the pace and scale of change that we've seen in our lifetimes. The stresses and strains of living in this modern world. People's hopes, dreams, aspirations, disappointments, sadnesses. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. What Jesus sees is individual people and his heart goes out to them. What's interesting about this is when you then look into chapter 10, the first thing Jesus does is he gathers together a very close group of friends. Matthew, the author of this gospel, is one of them. And he sends them out into these needy communities to proclaim that the kingdom of God has come. Jesus loves these people and so he sends his disciples into those communities to tell them something. Their message is that heaven is invading this miserable, broken world. He sends them out to preach and teach the gospel. Good news, that means. He gives them power to do what he's been doing. Motivated by his love for people, he sends his disciples out and tells them to go and love people. Go and tell them that God's kingdom is here. Go and tell them that there is hope and life. Go and tell them that God cares for them. Go and tell them that God invites them to come to him. Go and call them out to trust God and to live new lives. And what does he tell his disciples to do? He tells them to go. 
into those communities and preach the gospel and to tell people that there is a living hope found in him. The second thing I want you to notice is that all the way through chapter 10, it's all about the going. When you get to chapter 11, there's a very odd little episode relating to John the Baptist. And um, John has been thrown into prison by the governor, Herod, for his preaching. He, John the Baptist, by the way, was known for his very direct and he was known as a very wild and fearsome preacher. He didn't care what anybody thought. He just wanted to preach. This is a man who does believe and he knows God. He's not ignorant. But now though, from prison, he sends a message to Jesus to ask, are you really the Messiah? So my second uh, little heading here is not only does Jesus love needy communities, but he reassures nervous characters. Isn't it incredible that the Bible records the doubts of one of the most famous and fearless preachers in its pages? And as he's sitting in his prison cell, he's wondering, have I got this wrong? Does that encourage you? (laughs) I've been thinking about this a lot. The subject of doubt is a very interesting one. That's not our subject this morning. But it's very relevant, this, to our modern culture. We live in an age where it seems almost impossible to know anything for sure. I think people in our modern culture are actually very spiritual. Most of us do think about life. and But it's complicated, isn't it? So many voices, so much information to take on board, so much choice, so much noise, so much information overload. How can I possibly know if something is true or not? I think many people wouldn't wouldn't go near a church because they think that all the people there are either really sure or if they're not sure, they're just pretending to be sure. The interesting thing about John is that he goes straight to Jesus. Are you the one who was to come? He isn't shaking his fist and stubbornly refusing to believe in Jesus. He has doubts. And just notice that Jesus doesn't condemn him or crush him or rebuke him harshly. He understands him. He sympathizes with him. And he sends a message back that is calculated to encourage his heart and reassure and reaffirm his faith. We haven't got time to go into it in detail, but you can read the verses on your own. Jesus loves needy communities and he reassures nervous characters. Isn't that brilliant? Thirdly, we're just building up uh, back to chapter 11. Thirdly, Jesus warns neglectful cultures. One of the the other words that could be used to describe our own age is the word apathy. And after speaking a little bit about John, Jesus speaks to the crowd. He's very harsh with them. And And to paraphrase Jesus, he says, John was a little bit weird. He was a little bit wild. He was a bit blunt and a bit shocking. He didn't like him. And now the Messiah comes and he's welcomed by the masses and you ridicule him as a friend of tax collectors and sinners. 
you don't know what you want. We have a very eclectic mix of music in our car. We have five children. When we go on a long journey, it is very interesting what, what music we choose. We've got a thing in the car, I don't know how it works, but you can download music onto it, like a hard drive thing, and, and then all the music stay in a list. I want to listen to such an attack. No, we don't, I'm not in the mood for that today. We're going to listen to this instead. No, we don't want... So, we're always having debates about what to put on. Long journeys are a nightmare. You don't like sad music. You don't like happy music. Restless. Is that not... Jesus is saying that about his culture. You are restless and apathetic. You can't make your mind up. You don't know what you want. And then Jesus says some of the harshest words that you will find in the whole of the Bible. Don't forget, this is the man who says, come. This is not, this is not some killjoy. These are the harshest words you'll find in the Bible. From verse 20. He began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you. Woe to you. And Jesus actually says, if the mighty works done in you had been done in places like Tyre and Sidon and Sodom and Gomorrah even, they would have repented a long time ago. I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for them than it will be for you. Now that is, that, that's uh, harsh. If those people had seen what you've seen, they would have repented. But you're doomed because of your sheer apathy and lack of response towards me. <coughs> the point of these words is for Jesus to shock them. He is not invading the world as a kind of optional extra. This is the Lord speaking. This is God in human flesh reaching out to a needy and nervous humanity with great compassion. And people go, whatever. There's a very important point here. It is pretty shocking that Jesus says that their situation will end up being worse than Sodom. Because these people are religious. Morally, these people are the salt of the earth, as we say. These are upright, law-abiding citizens, respectable people. These are the kind of people who read the paper and think, cool, I'm, not, I'm glad I'm not like that. And if I'd lived in Sodom and Gomorrah, poor, I wouldn't have tolerated any of that kind of nonsense. These are the kind of people who are moral, self-righteous people. Jesus says, you're worse than they were. Pardon? The problem is that you think you're okay morally, but your greatest sin is not your outward behavior, but your inner neglect of the God who created you and who loves you and has now come to you in the person of his son Jesus. These people weren't condemned for being murderers or being immoral. They weren't even condemned for fighting Jesus or attacking him. They were condemned in the strongest possible terms for just ignoring him. Do you get that? Then Matthew writes, at that time, Jesus declared. So, 
we've, we've reached um, verse 25. Long introduction. We'll try and rattle through. You can see now from our headings that this was the time when Christ himself invaded history and saw the full range of human responses, the neediness, the nervousness, and the neglect of human nature. He loves, he reassures, and he warns. And he himself experiences the reality of some people receiving him, some people rejecting him. And Matthew says, at that time, in the middle of all this going on, Jesus got really depressed because his plans hadn't quite worked out. Does it say that? Jesus was really grumpy because no one listened to him. Does it say that? Jesus threw a great big tantrum because he felt he was the son of God and deserved better than this. Is that what Matthew says? No, no, no. What does Matthew tell us that Jesus does at this time? He throws up his hands and prays and says, Father, thank you. What? He says, Father, thank you. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Does that strike you as an odd response in the face of all that we've just been saying? I thank you, Father. I praise you that this is the way things are. This is the way you are. This is the way things must be. In the middle of all this tumultuous stuff going on, the thing that stands out is his utter confidence that his Father is good and that he is working everything out according to his great plans. He isn't depressed or weighed down by people's lack of response or by the confusing culture. He's filled with gladness that God, his Father, does all things well. What gets me about this exclamation that Matthew records is that verse 26 is almost like a little, I don't know what you call it, it's like Jesus doesn't want to stop. He says this prayer and then says, yes, 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 Father, for this is your gracious will, this is your pleasure. It is like he just wants to have a little linger as he caresses this truth in his fingers. He, he, what does this say to you about Jesus? What kind of man is this man Jesus? Don't let anyone, don't let anyone kid you that Jesus is miserable or a killjoy or that he's some narrow-minded bigot. Even in the face of broken human nature, he is filled with overflowing joy. What that means is that he has great resources within himself to meet the needs of you and I. In other words, Jesus loves from a position of strength, authority and security, not of neediness and uncertainty. Well, we're getting a little bit closer to the verses we're thinking about. We've learned that people will always respond to Jesus in a variety of different ways. And we've seen something of the joy and that somehow Jesus is in control and transcends all of that. So let me just um, come to verse 25. And we'll just think about this prayer, explanation and invitation. Um, 
First of all, I want you to notice that this invitation says something about the attitude that we ought to have. I'm not going to dwell on this, but the, the prayer that Jesus prays, he, he says, I praise you, I thank you, Father, that you've hidden these things from the wise, and you've revealed them to little children. Jesus says, and he actually thanks and praises God, that God hides himself from the self-confident, and he reveals himself to the dependent. Now that doesn't mean that God hides himself from clever people. Jesus is not saying that God hides himself from clever people. What he is saying is that God hides himself from everyone who thinks that he is so clever that he doesn't need God's truth. There's a difference. That is a kind of cleverness that is corrupted by pride. Intellectual pride. He isn't condemning intelligence. But he is saying that proud, self-sufficient human wisdom will never find God. God opposes that and hides himself from people who are like that. Human nature, in many ways, is its own worst enemy. Secondly, this invitation says something about the power that Jesus has. And this is the explanation here from verse 27. I just want to skip over these verses. Read them uh, when you get home or during the week. There's a lot of debate about the identity of Jesus. Is he just a, a man who was a great leader? Is he just a charismatic teacher? Did he just get lucky? Well, I, I want to suggest to you, Jesus makes here some of the biggest, most extravagant and outrageous claims in the whole of the Gospels. First of all, notice that he says, in verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my father. Some of you know that I run a business. I started it 15 years ago. It employs a few people. Now I'm the minister of a church. So what I've had to do is employ other people to manage the day-to-day -day running of my business so that I can concentrate on doing this. And uh, it's not easy sometimes, emotionally, that issue. But I have to hand over and entrust to other people. I have to delegate and allow them to do stuff on my behalf. And they do a great job. Jesus is saying here, as a mere man, my father has entrusted everything to me. What? Can, can a man say that God has given all of his concerns to a mere man? Gets worse than that, though. Secondly, Jesus says, no one knows the Son, me, except the Father. What Jesus is saying there is, I am so vast, so infinitely glorious, so infinitely complex, that although you can know me in part, the only one who really knows me, the only one who can really plumb the depths of my person, character and being, is my Father in heaven. What, what on earth is he saying by that? But it gets even worse. Then he makes an even more staggering claim by turning that around and saying, no one knows the Father except me. I'm sorry to shout. This is quite exciting. The, the Father, theologians talk about God and they say, he's omniscient, omnipotent. He knows everything. For a man to say that the only one who knows God fully is me, can you see that logically that's a claim to omniscience? If you know God fully and he knows everything, you're saying that you know everything. 
what Jesus is saying here is I and my Father are one. This is a claim to be divine. Only God can fully know God. Do you get the mystery? Jesus has already said that the Father reveals himself to people. Now he goes on to say, that's my job as well. Not only are they one in nature, but one in purpose. My Father loves to reveal himself to the humble. And so do I. No one knows the Father except me. And anyone to whom I choose to reveal him. This prayer says something about the attitude that we ought to have. Jesus' explanation says something about the sovereign power of Jesus, the great God revealer. There aren't words to describe how staggering this is. Jesus is saying that it is not possible to come to God in any other way except through him. He is not one option among many. I'll pick uh, this one. No. He is in a class all by himself. Thirdly, this invitation says something about the great opportunity we have. I hope you can see why we've built that up to this point. These words are quite hard in the sense that you could say to me this morning, how on earth can I have what you're talking about here, Ian? I know that I'm not truly humble. And if it is all down to Jesus and his revealing power, how do I know he'll come to me? Well, that's, that's precisely why these words are so encouraging, isn't it? Because then Jesus says, Come to me. No restriction, limit, whatsoever. Now notice, he doesn't say, Come to church. That's a good thing to do. He doesn't say, Come to a religion. He doesn't say, Come to do a whole lot of stuff. What he says is, Come to me. I hope you can see why. And look who he invites to come. As Jesus surveys the human condition and he sees the needy, the nervous, the neglectful and he says, all of you who are weary and burdened, all of you who labour and strive and are heavy laden, what he's saying is anyone who wants to come can come. And this powerful word of Christ echoes down history even to you and me. Come to me. What is interesting is that there's two descriptions of people here actually. One's active, one's passive. The weary or the labouring are the ones who are tired of struggling. They're active, but they seem to work hard for no satisfaction. Do you get that? They yearn for fulfillment. They've tried everything, all kinds of things. And everything that they seem to try leaves them in the end feeling empty. And they're tired. They've labored. But the others are the burdened, the heavy laden. That's more passive, isn't it? These are the ones who are oppressed, hemmed in. Their lives seem trapped. And there's no hope of escape. They're weighed down with the impossibility of life. 
I don't know about you, but I, I think there's a surprising religious element to this. Religion, in a way, is very depressing. Because it is like God says to us, if you do this for me, then I might just accept you. I'm not going to decide yet, but I might. What you need to do is get on the treadmill, because I'm quite nasty and demanding, and you keep running, and if you run hard enough, you just might make it. If you're really, really good, I might just decide to love you. You live that kind of life, you're tired and burdened, aren't you? Religious effort of that kind can do you no good. It won't bring you rest. It won't bring you to God. What we need is someone to help make us right, isn't it? What Jesus speaks across the whole misery of human experience to the tired and burdened, and what does he say? Come to me, and I will give you rest. And the whole of God's heart is summed up here in five words. Is it five? <laughs> yeah, it is five. I will give you rest. Let me close with two illustrations. You can't buy this. You can't earn it. Forgiveness, life, relationship with God, they're a gift. I want to close with two illustrations. Um, very famous story some of you have heard of, Pilgrim, Pilgrim's Progress, written by a man called John Bunyan. There's a picture of Pilgrim with a great big sack on his back, full of guilt, fear, Eventually, he comes in the story to a little hill. And as he looks up the hill, he sees a cross on the top of the hill. And as he looks at the cross and sees that there was one who came, we sang about it earlier, he bore my burdens to Calvary. And as Pilgrim looks up the hill at the cross, the straps of his burden start to become loose. And it begins to slide off his shoulders. And all the bricks, all the weight, all the guilt rolls down the hill and into an open tomb. And he never, it says in the story, he never sees that burden again. The reason that Jesus can give us rest is because he has borne our burdens. He has gone into the darkness that we fear, the sins and selfishness that we often carry were laid on his innocent shoulders. And he has faced the consequences of our shame, sin, selfishness. Jesus never trivializes our failure. What he does is he carries it, deals with it, and gets rid of it. Do you sometimes wonder where you can find rest? True, real, deep inner rest. We strive for it, don't we, all the time. We look for it in our stuff. We look for it in our status. We look for it in our careers. We look for it in our relationships. We try to find it in our culture. When true rest is found in perfect reconciliation and friendship with God, who sent his Son to bear our burdens, only Jesus can satisfy those deepest longings give our lives genuine purpose liberate us from the selfishness that plagues us to take away our guilt and to empower us to be the people who are growing to be like him his love 
is the kind of love that knows the real you and loves you. He is the one who knows that all of us are like sheep with no shepherd, harassed and helpless. And he invites us to come to him for rest. What about a second illustration? Uh, We'll close with this. Let me show you another picture. This is a picture of a yoke. Um, apparently, I'm not a farmer, this is a farming picture, this yoke is designed to join two animals together. I didn't know this, but what used to happen was, what you would get is a big, strong animal, and you would yoke it together with a weaker animal that was learning. So the big animal would take care of the little animal, and as they yoke together in the harness, they'd plough the field, they, obviously the stronger one would be taking the burden, and the younger one would be learning how to do it. The picture here, Jesus says in verse 29, take my yoke upon you. What he's saying is, I'm the big cow. What I want is for you to put your neck into the yoke with me, and I want you to walk through life in harness with me. Isn't that a brilliant picture? The truth of Christianity is that we don't face life on our own, but we live life harnessed to Christ. It's the essence of discipleship, isn't it? It is to say, Jesus, you are my Lord. I trust you. I want you to teach me how to be like you. I want to throw off all the other yokes that have enslaved me, and I want to be joined to you. The interesting thing about this picture is that it does actually involve work. It isn't restful because Jesus just demands less and lets us off. It is restful because he calls us to follow him as he bears the load for us and with us. That is very different to religion, isn't it? Relationship. Well, we're done. These verses are the most incredible verses. They're always two sides to Jesus' invitation. Jesus saves us from something, and he saves us to something. He forgives our sins, and then he comes alongside us to help us and train us to live life with him. Jesus here speaks to the needy, the nervous, and the neglectful. And with great power, his voice rings out to everyone who has the ears to hear, come to me. All ye who who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The really obvious question for you here this morning is, will you come? Isn't it? Will you come and trust the one who knows you, who has compassion for you, who laid down his life to save yours? And who longs to fill you with his peace and teach you his ways. Bishop of Sheffield, J.C. Ryle said, If you have come to him already, cleave to him more closely. And if you have never come to him, begin to come today.